Welcome to Balthazar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth, a series of conversations about the life and teachings of Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, who is considered to be one of the most important Catholic intellectuals and writers of the 20th century. Incredibly prolific and diverse, he wrote over 100 books. He is also co-founder with Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger of the acclaimed theological journal, Communio. It is the purpose of this series of programs to introduce some of the themes of Balthasar's work, and perhaps to help some understand better why Hans Urs von Balthasar is so important for modern theology and for the lived experience of the Church today. Balthasar, Beauty, Goodness, Truth. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. In this episode, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Anthony Lillis, Academic Dean of St. Patrick's Seminary, located in Menlo Park, California. Dr. Lillis is the author of numerous books on the spiritual life and is widely considered a scholar of the Carmelite mystical tradition. We now begin part four of our conversation with Dr. Anthony Lillis. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. It is wonderful to be with you, Chris. Thank you for these wonderful conversations uh, on Christian meditation. Uh, You've really started something that I think is really very important for people who want to pray. Thank you, Anthony. I appreciate that so much. We hear a lot about Christian meditation, and we think it's maybe for a static moment in our life, and yet Nothing is ever static, is it? I mean, we're, there's always kind of a, a movement. We talk about the spiritual journey. And so that it's, it's almost an and both, isn't it? I mean, we're moving towards something, even though we've paused in this moment and we're receiving and responding and all the things that are incorporated in meditation. Traditionally, uh, and Hazar Sambalthazar speaks about this, spiritual writers in the Christian tradition have talked about these kind of three basic phases uh, in our journey. And so there is the moment right now, this grace-filled moment that we have right now in prayer, but that grace-filled moment plays out against a a kind of pilgrimage, and the pilgrimage has a beginning and an end. And the three parts of the journey or steps of the journey, this book is kind of followed. Uh, It starts with kind of a purgation, and then uh, after purgation, there's enlightenment, and then finally union. Where the ancient Christian writers got this actually was in our baptismal preparation for those who were going through the rites of Christian initiation. This was language that they employed to prepare people for the sacraments and to accompany them after the sacraments. And with purgation, the very beginning of the spiritual life, it coincides with the catechumenate when people were coming and deciding to join the church, they were given instruction, but the instruction that they were given was required them to let go of their former way of life. And so that's why it was is a purgation. They had to let go of something in order to be ready for something more. Once they'd gone through the purgation, the catechumens, uh, our listeners, everybody knows this, but the bishop calls or elects and actually it's Christ through the bishop elects among the catechumens, those who will be getting ready to receive the sacraments. They enter, they're called the elect and they enter into, because they're chosen, and they enter into this time of enlightenment. And and in this enlightenment phase, 
Whereas before you kind of talked about the literal meaning of the scriptures and what this actually means for your concrete life in the most basic ways, in this time of enlightenment, you go deeper into the mystery. As you go deeper into the mystery, not only your external behavior, but your inner dispositions of heart are questioned and are scrutinized. And so during the period of enlightenment for the catechumens, we have these scrutinies where deep things of the heart are questioned. And it's also a time of intense spiritual battle. And so that's why during the scrutinies, there's also these kind of little minor exorcisms that are done to prepare people for baptism. Then we get to the third part, which is really our conversation today. And in the third uh, step of the spiritual life, uh, you have uh, the step of union. And this corresponds with what we call the sacraments of initiation, receiving those that Easter, uh, on the Easter vigil, but it, but it also afterwards this period of being an, a neophyte and the kind of catechesis that's given uh, is called uh, mystagogical. You, you induct people into the fullness of the mystery. I know this explanation was a little bit long, but our prayer, uh, that's what happens to people actually in the sacramental economy. But there's something analogous, the spiritual writers in the Catholic tradition have always seen, there's something analogous happening to us who are already baptized, maybe as infants. Being baptized as infants, uh, maybe there are mysteries that unfold, that used to unfold during the, the catechumenal phase, but now unfold for us throughout the rest of our life. And so there are mysteries that are purgative, where there is sin that we need to let go of. And then there's mysteries that are in, enlightenment mysteries, mysteries that challenge our inner dispositions. Uh, and then finally, there is this mystery of union, of friendship with the Lord. And this unfolds. So when you were talking, your original question was, a, and I'm sorry, I went on for so long, but your original question was, when I have this moment of meditation right now, it's not just this moment, it's part of this broader journey. On one hand, it can be a mistake to overemphasize and always be trying to figure out where am I on the journey. That, that can be a distraction. At a certain stage, you need to pay attention to what God's doing for you right now and not be so worried about where you're at. Uh, but on, on the other hand, there are things that, graces that you're receiving for where you are in it, at the journey. And if you understand where you're at, it helps you in your prayer. And von Balthasar is no less attentive to this same mystery. So he has divided his book also into these three stages of purgation, enlightenment, and union. And in this last stage, he talks about union. And as he talks about union, he's going to bring in three great mysteries. Remember I said the stage of union is the kind of catechesis that's given is called mystagogical catechesis or mystagogy. And mystagogy is about inducting those who are fully baptized into the mysteries of the faith. And this is what von Balthasar basically does in this, in this final chapter. He, he's going to induct us into the mystery of the Holy Trinity and the mystery of Christ um, through the mystery of Mary. Always surprises me, and I don't know why, but he is so scripture-based. He's constantly going back into the scriptures to reveal to us things that, you know, those aha moments. I mean, I knew that, but I didn't know I knew that. And he speaks about how Christ's mission in the very beginning of this chapter 
as we look at the Gospel of John, was to bring us into that union. I mean, that's his primary mission is to, and it's, so it's really for all of us because he came for all of us, didn't he? Yes. But here on this point, uh, Christ did come for all of us. We're all invited to the heights of of union. And so this sometimes spiritual writers and different thinkers and so forth will talk about uh, the prayer of union or different forms of mystical prayer has only been for the very few of the church and kind of the spiritual elite. And then the rest of us poor schmoes kind of plog through life and try to pull ourselves to mass, you know, when we when it's available. And after this pandemic, I no longer take that for granted. What a gift to be able to go to mass. But the idea though that that we're not all called to perfection. Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And his last prayer be- the night before his, he he died was a prayer of union. May they be one, O Father, as we are one. The prayer Jesus offers the night before he died, Von Balthasar points this out. So there's a way in which all Christians are called to the perfection of the Christian life, and we're all called to union with God. And this threefold path then isn't for the spiritual elite. It's something that we all go on. Von Balthasar doesn't write about this, but John Paul II does that the purgation and the enlightenment that happen in this, that are meant to happen in this life, if we refuse those graces now, and by the mercy of God, we're still received by him when we go to heaven, that purgation and that enlightenment still needs to happen, either in this life or the next, but it's got to happen. And um, uh, uh, because unless we've let go of sin, unless we've been enlightened by the Lord, uh, by, with the truth, uh, we can't have union with him. What you've just observed then is particularly rich. There's a lot of powerful scripture passages that von Balthasar refers to throughout his text, but, but here he, uh, he starts his kind of chapter with union, with Christ's prayer for union the night before he died. This is the reason Jesus died for us, that we might have union with God. Could I read this a particular passage to you, Anthony, and maybe you could comment on it because I found it really kind of compelling. I mean, he will write in the third section of Christian meditation that early Christian mysticism leaned heavily on the image of God stamped on the created spirit. By means of purification and meditation and by entering into one's own inner depths, this image can be cleansed from the layers of impurity contracted in the world and can be made to shine through. Almost unnoticed, this early mysticism then added the second step, namely that we are an image only in the original image that the sun is. From this point, two ways are possible. That by meditation, we transport ourselves back to the logos of the sun, who is himself our original image, and also as the world of ideas of every individual thing contains it in himself. But is this way really practicable if it is not opened up to us by the original image as a free grace? And is the concrete form of this grace not the incarnation of the Son, who thereby becomes our way and more, our life and truth? 
Now, that's such a Balthazar statement. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's like he does these elaborate dances as a wordsmith. But for the, for the average person, at its heart, can you help us to understand where he's leading us in that reflection? Well, first, that reflection has a context, and the context is a very important question. I, I think many people who earnestly want to pray uh, ask, and, and, and it's a problem. So he, before he talks about the incarnation, this, the mystery of the incarnation, remember, union involves mystagogy, this induction into the mysteries. And so he's going to take us into the mystery of the Trinity and into the mystery of Christ Jesus and into the mystery of Mary. But to get us into those mysteries, he poses a very contemporary question. And the contemporary question is, when I enter into meditation, there can be, uh, and people describe this, and so I, I believe it's true because this is an actual experience that many people have, and this is what puzzles them. There's an experience of union that is so strong that where God begins and I end it, you can't really find it. And, and I find myself identifying with God, uh, with the, uh, this, and, and non-Christian religions do this too this idea that I and God are one. He goes, for the Christian, the moment we feel this thing like that, because we are good Christians, we go, but I can't be God. I'm a creature and I'm not the creator. So what von Balthasar is trying to do with the, this question of the incarnation and the way he's unfolding it is he's, he's beginning an expose by which He's going to help us understand what this experience of union is and why in this experience of union, where it seems like all boundaries collapse, actually boundaries don't collapse, but they are made more perfect and beautiful. It, my creaturehood doesn't disappear or be absorbed by the creator. Instead, in that union with the creator, Ramon Balthazar wants to help us understand why it is the more united I am to, to Christ, the more fully the creature I was meant to be, I become. And so this is a polarity, unity and difference that he has throughout his writings, but he brings it to bear right here in Christian meditation. And, and pastorally, this is important. There are some Christian movements of meditation today, most particularly centering prayer falls into this camp. The beginning, when they first teach you centering prayer, for those of you who've dabbled with it and you've gone to a workshop or something like that, they talk about how, you know, centering prayer is innately Christian and they'll connect it with the Christian tradition and so forth. But as you go to later workshops, they begin to talk about the same experience that von Balthasar is talking about. And this, the same experience is what I've just described. You have this kind of union and it seems to you, has your experience in it that you and God are so identified, he seems so present to you that you're overwhelmed with that presence. And, and where am I? I feel lost in God. And so some of the proponents of centering prayer will say, yes, and this shows us that there's kind of a, a limit to Christian doctrine that you need to go beyond. And von Balthasar doesn't say this here, but he does say elsewhere, he says, once you go beyond Christ, once you go beyond Christian doctrine, 
you're no longer talking about Christian meditation. It's something else. And so my chief concern for those who engage in centering prayer is that the, the proponents of it in their more advanced workshops actually consciously are aware that they're bringing you beyond Christian meditation. They, they think they're doing this in good conscience. They think that this is the logical progression. In a mysticism of identity, and centering prayer goes towards this mysticism of identity where I completely identify myself with God and God with myself, and I don't see any difference. In that kind of mysticism, what I need to do is I need to surmount the world in order to get to God. I need to surmount my creaturehood in order to get into the creator. And the world and my created finitudes, my limits, my weaknesses, these are the things that are holding me back. And if I can surmount them and overcome them, then uh, I will realize that God and I are, are one and I'll go beyond all have this more enlightened consciousness. And Balthasar is saying, no, 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 no. That's not the Christian way. Other religions may go in that direction uh, and may propose that, but this is not what Christ Jesus proposed as the way to the Father. The threshold to the Father is through the crucified humanity of Jesus, because that crucified humanity has been raised up by the Father. We can't get into the heart of the Trinity by our own efforts and industry. Uh, we can call for help, and Jesus comes and brings us home. And as he brings us home, we discover that the world that we thought was holding us back and all our weaknesses and voids and inadequacies, all our failures, these were not something that were thwarting our union with God. They are precisely the things that Jesus takes to himself and transforms in his, through his incarnation and his death on the cross into means of grace so that rivers of God's love flow through us in our prayer. I went on a little bit, Chris, and I hope um, I didn't go too far on that, but, but that's where von Balthasar is trying to take us. He's, he's trying to keep our Christian meditation rooted in Christ Jesus. And to do that, he needs us to understand our humanity as not something that is a general and abstract thing, but something that's concrete and real, that has a connection with this world, that's relational, and that's rooted in Christ. Christ has joined my humanity to his when the word became flesh in the womb of Mary. Okay. Let's go to Mary. He spends a lot of time with her, and she is somebody he knows, it seems, very well. He really, I mean, he has really pondered the person of Mary, hasn't he? He has. And one of the beautiful things he begins to explore or talk about, and, and we we'll, might need to back up, is Mary's relation to Christ he proposes that Mary's relation to Christ Jesus is a model for how we should relate to Christ Jesus. The mystery that he sets up is how is it that Mary, uh, this woman who is totally other than God, totally other than the creator, is able to receive the, the, the word seed of the father into her womb and uh, nourish 
that word seed with her very self um, until um, uh, until the, uh, the uh, uh, as the baby is conceived and gestates and grows and develops is born. In order to do that, and then after he's born, she continues to pour herself out for her son. How is it that she's able to have this intimate relationship with God who rather than absorbs her humanity, uh, the more she relates to him, she becomes mother, she becomes um, uh, uh, implicated in his saving work. How does this happen? How do two things that are so totally opposite, God and man, have such an intimate relationship? And, and to answer that question, we to really understand Mary, we need to start with the Holy Trinity, actually. You see, what we believe as Christians uh, uh, about God, he is in his, the unity of his nature, in his oneness, there, his oneness is characterized uh, by this otherness in his, in his uh, very substance. Uh, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are three distinct persons, and because they're three distinct persons, they are totally other, one from the other, uh, one distinct from the other, and yet of one nature. It tells us the nature of God in the, the very reality of that nature there is space for the other. And, and why is this important? We, it's revealed to us by the Gospel of John in John's writings that God is love. But love is relational. So if God is love and love is relational, there must be something relational in the God that Jesus has revealed to us. So we don't believe that Jesus and the Father are the same person. They're two different persons, but they're the same God. And because they are persons distinct in the same Godhead, they are able to love one another. The Father is reveals to us in his very person a love that is given without cause. It is a love that is just flows out from the Father. And the Son reveals a love that is beloved, receives everything from the Father, and offers back to him. Between the Father and the Son, is there's this relationality of, of a, a love given and received and offered back in thanksgiving. Our Eucharist, our, our Mass, is a joining in the, the eternal thanksgiving of Jesus. It's kind of mind-blowing. And how are we able to do this? Because the Father and the Son in their mutual love for one another, their mutual possession of each other, the mutual gift of one to the other, that's personified in a super fruitfulness called the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the love that is shared, the love uh, that is fruitful between the Father and the Son. And so uh, the, the Father loves, the Son is beloved and offers everything back in thanksgiving and uh, that by which the Father unveils his love to the Son and the Son to the Father is the Holy Spirit, Spirit of love. This otherness that is in the Holy Trinity means that 
because in the very essence of God, there can be otherness. We have a God that is able to create things or make things other than himself. And from all eternity, he conceived us as having our own existence apart from him. And he conceived from all eternity um, his, the relationship that he would have with this creation that was other than him that he cherished. And the apex of that creation was the woman that he would cho choose as his mother, through whose womb he would unveil his mystery to the world. And so this beautiful, the world then, that from Balthazar is presenting us in Christian prayer is not a fundamentally an evil thing. It's something that from before the found, its own foundation, God conceived and loved and brought into existence. And, and he brought into existence other than himself, precisely because in himself there is otherness. And so he cre could create something other than him and find it beloved and good. And uh, notwithstanding all the evil that has been unleashed in the world and all the difficulty and the pain and the suffering that's there, the world is not something, an obstacle to the, um, the plan of God. The world is not an obstacle to our union with God. The world is part of our union with God. And Mary uh, is the one in whose uh, in whose very person this reality of Christian contemplation first begins. She, her, her meditation of the word in her heart preceded, says St. Augustine, the conception of Jesus in her womb. She received the word in her heart before she bore him in her womb. And for Christians, this becomes a model in Bombaldasar's work. For Christians, we conceive Jesus in our hearts. We ponder him in our hearts. And as we ponder him in us, our hearts, he bears fruit through our bodies in the world. Uh, the world is the place where the glory of God is meant to be revealed. It, um, uh, it's not something that I go beyond. It's something that the glory of God is manifest in. And as it's manifest in, this is how I journey to union with the Lord. This concludes part four of our conversation with Dr. Anthony Lewis, discussing Hans Urs von Balthasar's Christian Meditation. To learn more about this book or to obtain a copy, go to ignatius.com, the website for its publisher, Ignatius Press, or you can find it at any fine Catholic bookstore. To hear and or to download this conversation, along with many other episodes of this particular series, visit vonbalthasar.com.